Hey everyone, today's episode of the Guitar Speak podcast is brought to you by the Michael Dolce 2019 Masterclass Tour and the Byron Bay Guitar Festival. Hi guys, Michael Dolce here to announce my Masterclass Tour of 2019. Um, it has already kicked off and I'm looking forward to bringing it to a town near you. This particular time around, I'm dedicating the sessions to an open style topic. So basically, you guys as the players will dictate how the masterclass will run. The classes are open for intermediate to advanced players. And as per usual, I always strive to make the classes non-intimidating. There's a whole heap of jamming. If you'd like some more information on the classes, please visit my website at www.michaeldolcemusic. And I hope to see you guys there. Cheers for now. Byron Bay Guitar Festival's on soon at the Byron Bay Brewery, Saturday 12th and Sunday 13th October. Two days, two stages, masterclasses, markets and 30 performances from the hottest guitar acts, including Hearts, Frenzelrom, The Delta Ricks, Nathan Cavallari, Marshall O'Kell, Minimarks, The Sidemen and so many more. Saturday and Sunday 12th, 13th October at the Byron Bay Brewery. Hurry and get your tickets now at byronbayguitarfestival.com. Amplified sponsors of Bay FM. Hi there, you are listening to the Guitar Speak podcast. My name is Matt Wakeling and this is the show I've been producing in Sydney, Australia since around April 2016 and I get to speak to great guitar players and guitar related figures from all around the world. Thank you so much for joining me for today's episode with one of Australia's most beloved musicians, Phil Sobrano. Now, Phil is a fantastic musician, having toured the world numerous times, has appeared on countless sessions and album dates, and he's worked with his sister Kate Sobrano as a music director and co-producer of some of that fantastic work, is well documented. Now, Phil is a larger-than-life character. He's done a lot of public speaking, television, presenting, uh, helps run a PR company, is a co-director of the Rock Academy of Australia, training up the next generation of musicians. And yet behind all of this energy is a very thoughtful and reflective man, and I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. So let's jump straight into it. Phil Sobrano, welcome to the Guitar Speak podcast. It's great to be here. Mate, thank you for joining us now. Um, we'll obviously get to your career working with your sister Kate, but I'm wondering mm. if we go way back, what started you on guitar and was your household particularly musical when you did that? Yeah, that's a good question and uh, it is a question that I get asked a lot. Uh-huh. Um, our household was full of uh, um, it was full of music and and it was full of expression. I think that's probably the big thing with, with our family, we were big on, um, on self-expression and finding your voice and finding what you, you know, um, wanted to communicate. Um, it, it wasn't like a showbiz family. Like you, you hear of, you read autobiographies and hear of stories of people have gotten into music and that their dad was a composer and their mother was an opera singer and they learned to play the, the clarinet. And by the age of 16, then they, you know, started playing bass. And you almost have to say this with a English accent because it's like the story of Jeff Beck or whatever, you know. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I started playing drums and then, you know, the, I was in a band and then the bass player dropped out. So I picked up the bass and I found I got bored with that because all the other 
blokes up the front of the band were getting all the girls, and so I started playing. <laughs> that's how I got into guitar playing. You know? um, so no, it wasn't like that. It was more like um, <laughs> uh, for us, it was more like finding ways to get to perform and entertain. My sister was a born entertainer, and my brother. We were all in the school plays, like at high school. It's the only reason I went to high school was because of the school play. Um, and it was around the late 70s and early 80s. And back then, like, the coolest thing you could do and be was to be into music or be in a band, you know. Um, and I, 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 I had a, a friend who would bring records to school and play them and I think one of the first things I heard his name was Leon Storch he had Led Zeppelin 4 but I think it was um no it was it was Led Zeppelin 4 it was it was Black Dog right oh. so that vocal opening and then the guitar coming in uh-huh. I had never heard anything so massive and I not just guitar but everything Everything about it was like, that's earth moving. That's earth shattering. And then when I heard Whole Lot of Love, that that riff, that guitar riff, I was like, yeah, I think I want to. I think I want to be a part of this somehow. My thing was acting. I wanted just. I wanted to be an actor. I was a big sort of fan of you know, the James Dean, Marlon Brando sort of vibe. Mm-hmm. And I, but I was never going to get parts back in those days because. My look, uh, you know, there's, there was nothing on TV that could sort of fit me in. Um, and so I, I, I started to play guitar just in a way to kind of keep, I don't know, um, busy and, and, and creative. My, um, our background, our family background is, is in martial arts and uh, my father was a really well-known karate teacher and and a bit of a mentor and and father figure to a lot of people of back in those days and he had a student who couldn't afford to pay for classes and so my mother wrangled a deal with him that well maybe if you teach Phil to play guitar then we can do it as like a kind of a bartering thing yeah, right. cool. uh, for guitar lessons so it's not as if I kind of like said, you know, right, that's it. I want to play guitar. It was just sort of happened. And I ended up sitting with this guy and it was a, an acoustic nylon string Yamaha student guitar and just learning a few chords. And then, you know, he tried to kind of teach me that book. There's a book on Spanish guitar and it just has very basic music notes uh-huh. and you and you learn melodies and things yeah, right. and i did that for maybe 3 or 4 weeks before i got bored and then he said well what what is it that you want to learn and and he, and as he was saying that he was noodling on the guitar ah uh, okay okay and what he was noodling was these bluesy kind of you know rock riffs i said i want to learn that that's what i want to learn and he's like, oh, well, that's the blues. And I go, well, that's that's. I reckon I could, I, I connect with that, right? It's probably me just being lazy and bored with 
with theory and stuff, but um, uh, I knew a few chords and I could play a few Bob Dylan tunes, but when I heard Like a Rolling Stone, there was all this other stuff going on and I'm like, oh, no, I want to learn that other stuff, all that fiddly stuff, the bluesy kind of stuff. And so that that sort of started me on the whole journey and he would take me to go and see movies at this this cinema called the Valhalla which was in Richmond back in the day and I saw Woodstock and uh, Hendrix at Monterey and um, a whole bunch of other things like that and it was like yep that's what I want to do he took me to see Santana play in 1977 at the um, Festival Hall. I went to see um, Roy Buchanan at the um, Dallas Brooks Hall. This is wow. probably in se- in the seventies. And wow, that's he, Roy, Roy Buchanan had a Telecaster and a yeah. and a Fender Twin, and that was it. That was it. Yeah. Was and doing I was all like, the wah wah stuff with the tone. Yeah, knob just and with like yeah. tricks and yeah, awesome. yeah. And I'm like, yeah, that's that's it. That's what I want to do. So, so it was. Um, the first sort of four or five records were Eric Clapton was here, which was a live album mm-hmm. of Eric Clapton's. Santana uh, Moonflower was okay. a double album with a bunch of live stuff on it. Um, Jimi Hendrix Electric Ladyland, yeah, and uh, Led Zeppelin Four and Two, uh, Fleetwood Mac Rumors. Um, you know, all the good stuff. Yeah, yeah. Problem, though, for me was that that's like, um, it's kind of like saying that you want to learn to mountain climb and then just starting at base camp, yeah, you know, right. um, because it just, it was beyond, it was way, way beyond. Um, and so you didn't have YouTube and you didn't have Tab. You just had these records, these actual records. And I remember just playing little bits over and over, little licks, just kind of like over and over. And whenever I could, I would get with guys and say, hey, how do you play that bit? Or how do you play this bit? Um, and uh, I've actually been thinking a lot lately about just starting a YouTube uh, channel or a Facebook group and just doing just short little licks that people can learn. Um and without any kind of technical stuff, just here's how it goes and here's how it goes slow. Yeah, right. And just get all my mates to get on there and just put in their, you know, all their little licks. I had um, Michael Dolce approach me the other day. Uh-huh. It was two years ago now. Yeah. And he goes, oh, man, I've been doing that lick that you showed on your video. <laughs> <laughs> it was, I guess it's not my lick. It was just a, it was a something I ripped off another guy. He goes, oh, no, but I I never thought to do that. It was just really simple, you know. But that community sort of vibe is a really good way to learn. That's that's how I did it from the start. So, yeah, yeah, that was was back then. Very cool. And how do you – when did you start getting your chops together enough to put bands together and get out and play gigs? Yeah, Yeah, well, my thing was always book a gig and then learn how to play. (laughs) <laughs> that, that, that's one way to do it that's one way jump in the, yeah jump in the deep end and um, <laughs> learn how to swim yeah um i let me see um 
I think I think it was like it was definitely the definitely early eighties mm-hmm. and I think one of the keys into the door for me was was sixties music because it was so simple. Okay. Um and I got into a scene uh called the mod scene and it was like the mod scenes of uh strange little scene it's scooters and um suits and um you're into motown and r&b and kind of um the who and the small faces and the the small faces were a really great kind of very simple band that was like a precursor to um rod stewart joining Mm -hmm. later and it was the faces and it was kind of had that stonesy kind of thing so it's all basically blues but but that that you could dance to three and four chord stuff so when i was a a mod that really introduced me to that kind of thing real simple riffs um and so i i learned i think the thing was and any you know any advice i'd give to a young kid is learn 10 songs you know look like stockpile and learn 10 songs that you can then, that are easy, that you can get with, together with another three or four guys and just do that because you can spend a lot of time, wasted time, just jamming on endless one chord sort of things. Mm-hmm. But um, if you want to do a gig, you had to have songs. You had to have, a, a, you know, a few. So, you know, as simple as like Wild Thing and, you know, um, Louis Louis again three chord things and um but there was this song called For Your Love by the Yardbirds yeah and yep. uh you know the one and yeah. it's got it's got sort of two different definitive feels to it it's kind of like got this really great um pop kind of chorus and then this middle eight bit which goes into this kind of like a bluesy thing which was apparently Eric Clapton's contribution um and then that made me think, oh, you can actually fuse all of the things into one. You can put bluesy stuff into the pop stuff. Um, and 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 that was one of those songs out of the 10 songs that I first played with a band, like a mod kind of band at my house. And I was like, oh, yeah, I could do this now. I can do this now. I'm, I'm just... Um, arrogantly as a teenager saying, yeah, yeah, this is this is going to be my thing. This is what I'll do. So, yeah, that was that. Yeah. Well, it's part of it as well. If you'd been acting, did you have a certain confidence um, getting up in front of people? Hmm. Um, yeah, yes and no. Um, it, it, the, the confidence thing was more about that was all I really knew I could do. Okay. Like that, yeah. You know, so it's it's funny when they talk about confidence with performance they, well they always talk about it with performance and public speaking and and uh, getting up in front of people but you really you'd really use that same kind of approach if you were talking about say someone who was good at kicking a footy right yeah sure you wouldn't you don't say to someone that's good at kicking a footy or is good at footy football you know knowing that you're good at kicking a footy does that you know did that that really must give you the confidence to get out there every every Saturday and kick it around and you know play footy? It sort of just is, right? They're good at that, and so that's all I was kind of good at was getting up and performing. Um, but the true answer to your question is that I I just 
wanted a girlfriend, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, like every other kind of kid, and um, that was that was my platform. That was what my way of promoting myself and getting, you know, getting up there. Um, and it wasn't until years later that I realised that I actually had to practice and get really, really good at it or better than I was for it to give me, me a personal sense of um, achievement as well. Sure, you know? yeah. Yeah, because yeah. up until that point, it was just like, oh, we're just having a laugh. You know, it's just another way to kind of, I don't know, not show off, but, you know, um, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Get up, yeah, you know the thing. Yeah. So about the same time, early 80s, your, your sister Kate is probably starting to get attention in I'm Talking oh, yeah. and then yep. moves on to her own solo career and sold schoolians of records. Um, when, yep. when, did, uh, when did you start working with her? Because you ended up, of course, becoming her music director. And, yeah. 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 When, when did that's, that all happen? Oh, look, that's a, that's a story that we could, we could probably talk, at a, talk on um, at another time. and. Sure. Um, it could go for hours, <laughs> but the sort of condensed version of it yeah. is that Melbourne at that particular time was a really, really amazing place to be a musician or a performer um, because there was so much going on and um, we didn't have the distraction of the internet and exposure to everything else in the world. The only thing we saw was... was some TV shows, we had NME and we had some other magazines. Yeah. The rest of it we sort of had to make up mm -hmm. out of little bits of information that we're picking up along the way. Um, so you get bands like um, I'm Talking that were doing 80s disco with a kind of a f white, funky, but they were sort of fusing talking heads with um, really black, funky uh, electro disco bands like Shalimar and and Chic, and um, and you get this really raw sort of I don't know broken down version with with this with all they needed was a singer, a really great singer, and Kate had been singing in soul bands um, in Melbourne and jazz groups, and it just it just was one of those magic moments where it just just clicked you know um i'd been playing around that time in fact we did a lot of gigs together i was playing with a mate of mine in one of my first bands it was a band called battle happy and that was on my rickenbacker and we were playing kind of battle happy would play sort of like i don't know it was a little bit jungly and funky and it was kind of a little bit like um there was a band called bow wow wow back in the day yeah, yeah um yeah and and um and hunters and collectors had that sort of tribal beat, sort of thing. And so we were we were sort of fusing all that. We were okay. in that sort of yeah, right. that kind of thing. Um, of course, our hunters early eighties that that would have yeah. just been breaking right open. It, it was inc it was incredible going to those gigs. And yeah, so we were right. like, well, how can we take that jungly kind of jungly jangle, mm -hmm. and and um, and and do our thing? And so I remember me as a 16-year-old, 17-year-old, telling the drummer that he won't be using rack toms, he'll just be using timbales instead of rack toms, right? <laughs> that sort of thing. Yeah. It was, you know, completely, and, and on this, 
you're not going to play any hi-hats. Um, it's all just going to be like jungle beats. He didn't know what I was talking about, but what I, I guess what I was trying to say is make it sound more like Adam and the Ants or something where it's like just like and and over the top I'd do this big sort of jangle funk on the on the Rickenbacker uh, and my mate Gumpy would, was who was singing he would um, just sing the most obscure lyrics it was was off the was really weird really <laughs> weird stuff but yeah we did a lot of gigs together with with I'm talking a few other bands god it was a great time but eventually Kate went out on her own and sort of dragged me in with her over to London to embark on this solo career which meant writing songs and working with big producers because there was a it was on London records and there was a quite a bit of um backing behind Kate. Oh, okay, yeah. So that was, again, that was really a challenge and it was like learn how to swim in the deep end. So that's when I kind of like joined in and did my best to kind of contribute there. And um, I remember learning stuff in the studio about how things worked, um, especially to do with um, soloing because I would just play blues solos over anything. Right. Yeah. And, but if you wanted to kind of get it a bit more jazzy and a bit more melodic, you had to sort of like, um, you know, break down the chord changes and do all that kind of stuff, which everyone seems to know about. I didn't know about that then. And I had to do it on the fly in the studio, surrounded by, you know, hotshot producers and, and people. And it was kind of like hair raisingly exciting and, the stuff that came out when you work with a really great producer like someone like like Nick Lornay, who was producing that album, that first album, Brave, um, you can actually find some great stuff from from really um, underexperienced musicians if you are a great producer, you know. And he definitely did that with me, and um, yeah, it was fantastic time, fantastic time. And then things, you know. A lot of touring and a lot more songwriting and producing and um, band wrangling and, you know, uh, so many road stories and fantastic experiences. But, you know, it was uh, great times. And was it a natural progression that you would become Kate's music director? Were you already doing that at that stage? Well, we sort of all were. We kind of all were in one way or another because we were like a big organic beast and sometimes the role of musical music director musical director is really just the dude that hands out the the charts and um and helps with new players and their parts right um that's that's all um i i you know had had that position by default um on on different things and then we get in in different people um, we worked with one of the most incredible musicians ever. He's sadly now passed away. A guy called Paul Gray, who was the um, singer of Wawane. Wawane, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and he was a lot. There was a lot more to that guy than just being the singer of Wawane, which is, which is a bit like that old joke, you know, you, you fuck one goat, <laughs> um, and that's all people know you for. But uh, he, he was an incredible musician, like um, an accomplished composer and songwriter and uh musical director across the board and so when he came on on it was like oh dude 
you know, you, you do it, you know, because you're, you know, you're all over this. And we would share ideas and we would make things grow out of nothing um, because we all had huge ideas and huge direction and there wasn't a whole lot of ego back then you know it was just this big fun ride it was fantastic um so yeah that's the that's the musical director thing i i never really felt like i was like the holy and solely that role because kate kate musically directs everything she does sure she's an incredible musician herself no right gotcha um, another project I want to ask you about is yeah. um, Trentwood, which I discovered um, uh, through Australian Guitar Magazine. They did an article yeah. on you. I think yeah. it's when I first noticed the Strat Plus, and the um, yeah. and they had a couple of tracks on there that that power yeah. pop kind of kind of thing, which yeah. was for a, for its short life was um, was quite prolific, and and you guys were playing all over the place. Tell me about that project. Ah. <sighs> Wow, the doomed Trentwood project. Okay. <laughs> if you want so, to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, after 20 years or so of playing with Kate and um, and doing quite a bit of session work and playing with a whole bunch of different bands, and um, i got to say the association with Kate was just amazing because it led to so many great things, mm-hmm. you know, um, and, you know, amazing travels and playing overseas and you know it's incredible pushing pushing my musical limits like just you know having to learn jazz and stuff like that which i've never been good at very good at but like trying to get my head around it and different different things like that was amazing so after about 20 years of all of that i um i wanted to see if i could do a solo thing and um it ended up that it should be more like a for me. I thought it'd be better if it was more like a band thing. Uh-huh. And I and I wrote a bunch of songs and went into the studio and recorded them and um, worked with a with another guy to kind of like um, executive produce the whole thing. And then we took the band out. We we printed a, a CD and then took the band out to promote it. And I had this idea that if I just kept touring. You eventually become part of the fabric uh, of the of the the scene, and people would, you know, would naturally follow. Um, one of the things that we did as a promotional thing, but also just just to do while we're on the road, was um, was we did school shows. So we would do a thing called Rock Show 101, which I created, which was a, um, a program where kids at school uh, put together a concert. And uh, they they form groups to kind of um, uh, promote the show, sell you know tickets and you know, put marketing ideas together, merch and uh, publicity. And then we had a tech crew that we trained up when we got there. We used to lug our own PA and then rock up to the school. And then you know part of their thing was they would have a battle of the bands, and they the the band that won their battle of the bands would be the support band for us. And then we do this amazing show and it was incredible. And we, um, we toured around for probably three or four years and it was a slog, you know, just around that time, the, the kind of major, major labels were all sort of imploding and, um, the internet was just starting to come in. Yeah. Um, so I should, and, uh, I should say, so this is early 2000s, I think 2003, yeah. 04, something yeah. like that. Right. Yeah. Gotcha. 
And so that was all completely driven by myself and my partner at the time. And it was really like we probably shot ourselves in the foot by being so independent. We were sort of inspired by these independent guys. It wasn't until years later that I realised that none of those guys were actually truly independent. They were they were they were working with touring companies and with promoters and with <laughs> with booking agencies, which we refused to. Right. And I don't think that the industry uh, liked that very much. Sure. Um, you know, but um, as far as the music was concerned, it was uh, it was. Re- I found it really fulfilling, and um, I was going to places musically that I'd kind of never really been before. Um, and it sort of st- it steered away a little bit from the kind of straight up kind of guitar playing, and it was more uh, song writing driven. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of the stuff that that I was writing about was kind of reflecting on the kind of previous four or five years not a lot of people got it. it was pretty pretty cryptic but um yeah I, I don't often listen back to that record but when i whenever i do i go wow that was real time that was real time mm-hmm. <laughs> you know that's that yeah that's yeah cool man yeah mm-hmm. but yeah because i always want to ask about it because i read about you guys and got a hold of a cd somehow and um yeah yeah you've um i mean these days obviously music's still a huge part of your life you're gigging um, yeah. all the time but you're also um running a pr company you're yeah. you're a co-director yeah. of the rock academy so it's interesting yep. you mentioned about being involved in in schools all that time ago because it's still yeah obviously a passion of yours um as well how much do you think doing the slog of being a a self-employed musician and you know working with Kate and taking your own thing out how much of that do you think informs um this creative and i guess entre- entrepreneurial streak in you yeah i think it completely and utterly informs it um and and gives it um its foundations um my wife and i run a pr company and we often get young people in uh wanting to wanting to work with us and wanting to do internships and um and they're fresh out of university and they want to come and work and the first question we ask them is, how much experience in this field do you have? And a lot of them, a lot of them don't have any experience. And um, I think that getting out there and getting getting experience and getting, um, you know, doing the slog and seeing it as a character building kind of career building move mm-hmm. um, is really beneficial because you can you can go to you can go to uni and get a degree in music. You can go to uni and get a degree in, you know, PR and communications. But it only is as valuable as, as you can actually um, execute it and, and it's to practical use. A lot of those, um, a lot of that comes from actually getting in the field and applying the, um, the methods and the theories. Um, I... Um, I think that nowadays, more than more than years ago, where you could just be a guitarist or just be in a band, I think that there's so much more opportunity to expand and to be in control of your career. Um, you know, I would say do as much work on your guitar playing as you as you as you do on learning how to build websites or learning about e-commerce or learning about you know getting some um, you know design. Um, skills happening because you're going to need to do that because you're not going to make money out of selling 
your records anymore, uh, you know, because of Spotify, but you will still make money out of something they can't replace, and that is a gig, you know. Um, the, the, get a great deal on the door and then sell your T-shirts, you know. Yeah. Uh, come up with some great product that, that's, you know, that's, you know, um, that you can you can flog to punters so they become part of your community. So that's kind of what we're getting into a lot with um, with the, with my the company that I work with uh, in PR, but also that I help young people with with Rock Academy, which is which is actually go, which is actually um, uh, going running these two two weeks that we're talking right oh, now. Okay, okay. Yeah. And we started out you know, five years ago with fifteen kids, and now we've got about eighty, and the, the the future is safe in their hands because they really get it. They really get what what um, what it's all about, and they're actually very inspiring to work with these young guys. Um, but the principles are all, of the music part of it are all are all pretty much the same as they ever were, and that is, you know, that you know, it's it's a bit, the power comes from from your passion and the um, and all of the expression comes from your personality and from your emotions. And if you can translate that into your music in a way where you can collaborate with, with others, you know, and not kill each other, then you're um, then you've got somewhere to kind of build from, you know. So that's what we give them with Rock Academy, and that's I'm really that's my proudest thing that I work on. I think um, is that. Uh, and if there was a, if there was a legacy to to leave, I think that would be that would be something. I think yeah alright there you go my conversation with Phil Sobrano and man if you look over that career that career that is ongoing and, and all the great things he has done and achieved if his proudest moment is raising up uh, a new generation of musicians and imparting all that wisdom and experience and encouragement I think that says a lot about Phil's character I love hearing about that. Now, I need to tell you, Phil will be appearing in another podcast episode coming up soon. It's a a, a secret little project. I can't tell you too much other than to say Phil will be talking a lot about his 1999 Strat Plus. That's all I'm going to say. Stay tuned. Okie dokie, almost time to go. So uh, I just want to say thank you for listening to the Guitar Speak podcast. If you head on over to guitarspeakpodcast.com, you can find uh, all of our links to social media, um, where to subscribe to the show, how to buy a t-shirt, how to get in touch, all that kind of stuff. Okay, my name's Matt Wakeling. Thank you again for tuning in, and I'll catch you next time. Bye now.